Now what I want to talk to you about is law and Sabbath, or Torah and Shabbat. And to do that, I need some background, and you've all heard this, so just sit there quietly, it'll be over soon. Let's go back to the Exodus sequence. What we have is Israel is enslaved in Egypt. They call out to God, and God rescues them by his own power. Takes them through the sea, and then gives them Shabbat, and then gives them the Torah. And the sequence is obviously important because it's also the sequence of every Christian in the world who ever comes to know God. First thing is, you are enslaved to sin. You are bound in sin, and you realize that you're enslaved to sin, and you cry out to God, which is what the Israelite people did. Instead of being enslaved necessarily to sin, they were enslaved to Egypt, which you can regard as a metaphor for the world. So they cry out to God as every Christian cries out to God when he realizes he's enslaved to sin. God then reaches out by his own power, which is salvation by grace. Notice that Israel, all they had to do was follow and agree. They had no other part in getting themselves out of Egypt. God did it all. The next thing that happens is, of course, you get baptized. And that's going through the Red Sea. And the scriptures talk about that as a baptism. A baptism, of course, is a transition from death into life. So the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt where they had been subject to enslavement and death. They were coming out of that realm, going through the waters and coming up on the other side into God's presence and life. The next thing that happens is he gives them Shabbat. And that doesn't happen at Sinai. It isn't entirely clear where it does happen, but the place where it's first mentioned is at the wilderness of sin. It probably happened at Marah you know, the bitter water, because what it says is there he gave them a rule. It doesn't say what statutes and rule he gave them. But then it talks about Shabbat in the wilderness of sin where they're going out and gathering manna on Shabbat when they shouldn't. And he talks about them, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys, are you going to obey me or not? Which sort of implies that they had Shabbat before, so I think it was probably Mara, even though the scripture doesn't say so. So then he goes to Sinai, and that's where he gives them the Torah. So notice that the giving of Shabbat and the giving of Torah are two separate things. And of course, once he gives them the Torah, he also talks about the importance of Shabbat in the Torah. But the commandment of Shabbat happened earlier than that. A couple of weeks ago, I caught Adrian Rogers. And he was talking about the Sabbath, and he says, for Christians, it's been changed to Sunday. I like Adrian Rogers a lot, but he just slapped wrong on that. Just completely wrong, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Listening also to Ron Dart, and he's doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and he's talking about Shabbat, and he's got it right. And by the way, Exodus, after leaving Egypt is the first place that the Sabbath is mentioned other than in Genesis 2. And there all it says is God rested on the Sabbath and made the Sabbath holy. doesn't give you any commands about the Sabbath. It just 
It says, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work that he had done, and he sanctified the Sabbath and made it holy. No particular commands to humanity. So the first time God commands the Sabbath is, as I said, I believe at Mara, after the Exodus. For example, it doesn't talk about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of those guys celebrating Sabbath. They did sacrifices and they worshipped God and all that kind of thing. I'm not suggesting that they probably didn't do Sabbath, but it isn't mentioned in Scripture. So one of the things that Ron Dart said that sort of struck me as interesting is God's attitude, and you know, putting your own attitude on God is always risky, but I have just taken you out of slavery. So, let's give you some rules to keep you from going back into slavery. So if you look at Sabbath and you look at Torah as God's instructions to keep you out of slavery, then it makes a whole lot of sense. Now, in our set prayers that we read, we say, we thank God for giving us the Torah of life and love and kindness and blessing and mercy and life and peace. That doesn't sound like a burden to me. That sounds like a blessing. And so if you look at Torah and Sabbath as God's prescription to keep you out of slavery, it makes a whole lot of sense. So let's start with Shabbat. First off, as I've just been building up to, Shabbat is sort of the first part of God's fabric of freedom. That's the first thing he gives you is Shabbat, not Torah. So it is part of the fabric of freedom. It's a reminder that God is interested in you. Because what you do at Shabbat is you stop what you're doing, you spend time with people who are worshiping God. You spend time with God. And the whole idea there is God is interested in you personally. That's the point of Shabbat. And, oh, by the way, as a practical thing, if you work seven days a week, you're going to die. That's sort of the practical side of it. But that's not the important part. Because one of the things that you'll find in the Sunday church is, well, I can worship God on any day. I don't have to do it on Saturday, I can do it any day I want. But what happens is if you have that attitude, pretty soon you're not taking a rest. You wind up going out some days and playing golf or tennis or whatever you play, or you wind up doing your yard work that you weren't able to get done. All sorts of things encroach on the Sabbath. If the Sabbath is not an appointment with God. So if you get to roll your own and just pick any day of the week that you want, pretty soon it will be every other week. And then pretty soon it will be once a month. And then pretty soon it will be nothing at all. So God is really adamant with Israel that they keep Sabbath. And I'll give you an example. Exodus 31, starting in verse 12. This is the wilderness of sin episode that I was telling you about, right? You know, where they're going to get the quail and the manna and all that stuff. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Notice it doesn't say anything about taking a break. It doesn't say anything about putting your feet up and relaxing after a hard week. 
Now you can do that. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that you don't take a break and put your feet up after a hard week. But that's not the purpose of the Sabbath. That's a benefit and a side effect. The purpose of the Sabbath is that you may know that I, Jehovah, sanctify you. And then down to verse 17 in the same chapter, Exodus 31, 17. Yet the Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That goes back to Genesis 2. So what he's saying is, I made the place, I created it, it's mine, and what I want you to do is I want you to take a rest on the same day that I did. Again, notice there isn't anything about being tired there. It's all your relationship with God. God loves you, he wants you to be with him, and he knows, because he made us, that if it's just sort of loosey-goosey and you guys do whatever you want and pick a day, and uh, it won't happen. So he specifies that day, and he's really hard about it. Now, I enjoy Adrian Rogers. I really do. He's a good preacher. He was. He's dead now. He said, that's for Israel. Remember, everything I just read to you is Israel, right? Israel. 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 Let's go to Isaiah 56. And Isaiah 56, starting in verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants... Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer to all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Does others sound like the church? The Gentiles? Sure. The point here is, God set the Sabbath. Among other things, it's a reminder of the fact that he created the place, but it is not just for Israel. It's for everyone who joins himself to the Lord. So, as I say, I like Adrian Rogers a lot, but he's just slap wrong on that one. So, that's Sabbath. The next thing that he does is he gives us Torah. And that is several weeks after he gives us the Sabbath. So he gave us the Sabbath first, and now he comes and gives us the Torah. Now, you've all heard me say this forever. Just relax. It'll be over quickly. The Torah is not designed for salvation. It's given to a people who are already saved. And the example I use is it's an old preacher's joke. You can spend all the time you want in a garage, but it doesn't make you a Ford. You can spend all the time you want doing the Torah, but that's not what makes you saved. And one of the things that the Sunday church has got wrong, and they get it from a misreading of Paul. Paul's a great guy. I like Paul. I'm not knocking Paul. But the idea that if you're going to depend on the law to save you, you've got to keep it perfectly. No. That's not right. The law isn't designed to save you. No matter how well you keep it, it will not save you. It isn't designed to do that. It's designed to keep you out of slavery. Different purpose altogether. One of the things that the Sunday church, God bless them, does is it says, all right, you can't keep it. Nobody can keep it. Therefore, don't try. 
just depend upon the grace of Jesus to save you. Now, the grace of Jesus is in fact what will save you. That's true. But in order for the grace of God to kick in and save you, what you have to do is you have to call out to him and you have to repent of your sins. He isn't some cosmic sugar daddy that goes up and says, oh, there, 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 boys will be boys. Killed somebody else, I guess we'll just slap some grace on them. That's ignorance gone to seed. That's dumb. It's not true. In order for you to be saved and to be forgiven of your sins, you've got to confess them. All right, now, everybody stay with me here. This is the hard part. In order to confess your sin, you've got to know what sin is. Right? Now, let me give you an example. Are there denominations in this country right now that look at things that God in his Torah say are sinful and say, well, it's no big deal? You bet there are. What has happened there is there are denominations in the United States and worldwide, I'm sure, not just us, that have taken parts of the Torah and say, those aren't really sins. Those are just a lifestyle choice. And again, that is ignorance going to seed. That is not true. It is wrong. And by the way, if you buy that hui, what winds up happening is you become enslaved to whatever this sin is that your local group has said is okay. Remember, the Torah is designed to keep us out of slavery. So if you ignore parts of the Torah, and you say, those are okay, just go ahead and do those. That's just a lifestyle choice. No problem, no harm, no foul. What you wind up doing is becoming enslaved to that thing that you practice. And in some cases, multiple things. Once you get started down that slope, the number of things that you think you can do continues to multiply. Very much like Sabbath. If you decide you're going to roll your own Sabbath and pick whatever day you want, pretty soon it's just all over the place and you're not doing it at all. That's why God is so hard over on these things. It's because he loves you and he wants you to keep you out of slavery. Now, what this Torah does is defines what's right and wrong, what works and what doesn't work. Torah does not mean law. Torah means teaching and instruction. And that's an important distinction because, of course, in the New Testament, it is translated into the Greek nomos or law. And the problem with that translation is that law implies that there's an enforcement mechanism. So if the law says, thou shalt not drive more than 45 miles an hour on this stretch of road, and you whip down there at 60, one of the things that is likely to happen is you're going to run through a speed trap, you're going to get a ticket, and there's points on your license, all sorts of stuff. So there's an enforcement mechanism there. That isn't the case with Torah. With Torah, the enforcement mechanism is not God sitting up there with a smite button, you know, looking down upon you and saying, ooh, he just jaywalked smite and hit you with a bus. No. What Torah is enforced by is God's universe. In other words, if you go around lying, pretty soon you're going to get a reputation as a liar and nobody's going to trust you. That's the enforcement mechanism. If you are an adulterer, 
pretty soon you're going to get known as an adulterer and people aren't going to trust you around their spouses. And you, in fact, may get shot crawling out of a window some night. That's the enforcement mechanism. What God is saying with his Torah is if you do these things, your life is going to be hard and your life is not going to be successful, so don't do them. Now, there's sort of three categories, if you will, of laws, Torah, regulations, teachings, however you want to call it. Some are deadly. So if you worship other gods, God regards that as a violation of a relationship between you and him. And God's the one that's upset. There was a, a post, and I won't name her, but there's this mayor that looks like a zombie. And there's a before and after picture of this gal. And the before picture, she is a very pleasant looking woman. And the caption was, this is her before she sold her soul to the devil. And as I say, I don't know whether she did. That's why I'm not naming her or any of those kinds of things. But the point is, if you do sell your soul to the devil, which is to say you go into his camp, what's going to happen is you're going to think, Ooh, look at all the benefits I'm getting. But as you look at your life over a period of time, what you're going to find is you're going to become uglier and uglier and uglier, both spiritually and eventually physically. In other words, it's going to show. So those sins are deadly, worshiped by other gods. Some are what we call torts, wrongs to each other. So if you dig a pit, you put a fence around it to keep people from falling in. That's just good practice. If you build a house, you put a parapet around the wall so people dancing up on your roof won't fall under the ground. Those are tort kinds of things. And then some are just preventing you from being stupid. And the example, in fact, I got this example from Ron Dart. I thought it was a wonderful example. And it says in there, you will not plow with an ox and an ass. Of course, the Greek mindset, which is legalistic, says, A, I don't have a farm, B, I don't have an ox, and C, I don't have an ass, so this doesn't apply to me. I can ignore that one. Well, that's not what it means. What it means is don't mismatch things. So if you did have an ox and an ass, the first thing you wouldn't be able to do is get a yoke that would fit both of them. They don't make them. The second thing is if you try and modify those two things, the animals pull differently, they're different sizes and all that kind of stuff, and you're going to wind up with some busted up farm equipment. It's just stupid. But it doesn't just apply to oxes and ass. So if, for example, you get somebody who's strict, honest, and scrupulous, he probably shouldn't be in business with somebody who's sort of fly by his pants and, and loosey-goosey because they're mismatched. So the idea here is when you're trying to put two things together, look at them and see if you've got a match and that they will work well together, and if they won't, don't try it. In other words, this is just wisdom. Now the problem that the church has is the church, God bless us, is Greek. So you have all of these things that are written for a Hebrew Eastern mindset, and it hits the Greek world, and we do things like, well, I don't have an ass, and I don't have an ox, and I don't have a farm. I guess that doesn't apply to me. I don't understand. And what they don't understand is how the East encodes wisdom. For those of you who have been through Proverbs with me, 
Proverbs are these very pithy little, typically two-line statements. And what they're designed to do is engender thought. And they're supposed to think about them and look at them and so forth. In fact, not plowing with an ox and ass would be a good proverb. But the idea is you're supposed to tease out the meaning from them by midrash talking, thinking, and so forth. They're not intended to be taken literally. They're a way of encoding wisdom. So when you hit the Greek mindset, which is scientific, straightforward, means what it says, I'm going to parse the sentence and I'm going to lay it out and I'm going to see if it applies. What you wind up having is the church disregards a whole bunch of the wisdom that's encoded in the Torah because they look at it and say it doesn't apply. The poster child for that is you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Again, if you don't have an ox, you're not a farmer, you can just sort of ignore that one. Except Paul brings it forward in Corinthians. And what Paul says is this isn't talking about oxen at all. This is saying that you must pay people who do things for you. And he applies it to paying your preacher, which he doesn't want. But the point is he takes not muzzling an ox and he brings it forward to people and he unpacks it for you in Corinthians. That's what lots of the Torah is. And when I say it just keeps you from being stupid, things like you will not take a bird and its young at the same time. There's all sorts of those things that you look at them and say, well, I don't raise chickens, I'm not a hunter, I'm nothing, it doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply to you. You just need to figure out how you can apply it to your life. And this is to keep you from being stupid and falling back into slavery. So, where are we today? Well, the church, God bless us, has gone from Sabbath, which, by the way, most of the early church was Jewish. You saw how strict God was about keeping the Sabbath in the passage I just read to you. Very, 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 very strong. And all throughout the Torah. That was just an example passage. There's nowhere in the New Testament where God says, or Yeshua says, or anybody says, Sabbath has been changed to Sunday. The rationale is, of course, Christ was raised from the dead on Sunday. Paul had a church meeting on Sunday night. Various things happen on Sunday. You know, don't take a tie. Get your gift together on the first day of the week, etc., etc., etc. Given that the early disciples and the first church was all Jewish, and given the strength of Sabbath in the culture, if God had intended to change it, it would have required some explanation. Not just, well, there was a prayer meeting on Sunday that Paul was at, you know, the one where the kid fell out of the window, and Yeshua raised from the dead on Sunday, and therefore the Sabbath has changed. No, sorry. If you're going to change the Sabbath for the Jews who are messianic, you've got to give them specific instructions, and you've got to explain it in order for that to take. So it is not changed hasn't changed, never been changed, it applies to everybody. So what's happened with us is we take the Sabbath, we then shift over to Sunday. Now when I was growing up, and I'm older than most of you, we used to have blue laws. And what that was is 
You couldn't open your store on a Sunday. Everything was closed on a Sunday. You couldn't do any work on Sunday. So at least when we went from Saturday Shabbat to Sunday the first day of the week, they were sort of strong about it. Anybody know anything that's closed anymore on Sunday? Chick-fil-A, okay. But very, very few things are closed. What's happened is it moves from Sabbath to Sunday to nothing. And that's where we are. Same thing with Torah. When we moved to this building, and we made the move, I think, in 2006, we actually came and talked to them about moving here a few years earlier. But the board that we talked to the first time we came turned us down. We got what I call the standard Baptist rectal examination. You know, when we're going in there and talking about we were interested in coming here and worshiping, we got all the theological questions. And one of the things that they did, which was very interesting, is they looked at us and said, so you guys are keeping Torah. And they then said, well, do you, do you, do you? And we finally came to something that we don't do, mostly because we're in exile and we can't. And they said, ah, you're not keeping the law either. And that was the attitude. We have found something that's in the Torah that you're not doing and you're not keeping the law either. And that implies two things. One is they were worried about it. Because if we were keeping the law to their satisfaction, that would mean that we would be a bad reflection on them. You guys can keep the law, why can't we? And the second thing it was is, okay, you're not keeping the law either. So if you're not doing that, you can't talk to me about the things in the law that I'm not doing. If you're not doing it perfectly, the fact that I'm not doing it perfectly either, you can't judge me. you got no place to stand. For example, I drove here this morning, which means I had six little fires going in my car, forbidden to light a fire on the Sabbath. Everybody here drove here. We are in exile. We don't live within walking distance of this building. We just don't. So the question becomes, do we drive here or do we not come? And the decision you all have made and the decision I have made is it's more important for me to be here than it is for me not to start my car on the Sabbath. Now. If we were in Israel, in a community where you have a synagogue within walking distance, neighborhood synagogues and so forth, they will not start their car on Shabbat, and God bless them. We don't have that luxury. So our choice is, do we come or not? But the point is, if you look at it as, you guys aren't keeping the law either because you started your car on Sabbath. Well, that means that you can't criticize me when I am an open and affirming church and say that sexual deviancy is okay. You can't judge me because you're not righteous either. You see the catechism there? And you wind up having no standards at all. Now, you've all heard my lecture on the human heart. I sort of agree with God on that one. The human heart is desperately wicked, only wanting evil continually and so forth. What the human heart wants is the appearance of righteousness 
while it is doing its own thing. Today we call that virtue signaling. Used to call that being self-righteous. Same phenomenon. We want to find some place that will say the things that we want to do are okay and so then I can look down on people who say that is wrong and you are a hater if you don't agree that what I'm doing is right so the heart wants the appearance of righteousness among men while doing what it wants that's who we are me too by the way I've got exactly the same tendencies everybody else does I want to appear righteous while doing whatever I want. And what the Torah does and what Shabbat does is it grabs me up by the stacking swivel periodically and saying, you can't do that. And you have to make a choice. Are you going to be obedient or are you going to do what it is that I've told you not to do? The whole point is it is not intended to be a cosmic killjoy what it's intended to be is keeping me from going back into slavery. That's what it's trying to do, is keep me out of slavery. And the problem with slavery to sin is it starts off as fun. But pretty soon you wind up like our zombie mayor. Anybody remember the story of Dorian Gray? Those of you who are older probably remember it. Picture of Dorian Gray. He had a magic picture. And Dorian Gray was a thoroughly disreputable fellow. He was not a good man at all. And what he did is he made a deal. And all of his sins showed up on this picture while he himself remained youthful, good-looking, vibrant, and looked like he was a trustworthy individual. So he's going through life doing really scummy things and not appearing to suffer any ill effects. But his picture which he keeps locked in a room upstairs, gets uglier and uglier and uglier because his sins show up on the picture. Most of us don't have such a portrait. Our sins show up on us. And if you find somebody who is into drugs, alcoholism, any of the habitual kinds of sin, you will eventually be able to see it on their face and their body. It will become obvious. But it starts off as fun. And what Torah says is you guys can't always tell when you're getting into this that it's going to be destructive so I'm going to tell you. That's what the Torah is. I'm going to tell you don't do this because it will wind up here and you can't necessarily see that at the early fun part of sin. That's what the Torah is for. It's not some cosmic cop. I'm going to finish here with God's opinion of pastors, priests, who don't teach his word. This one scares me, by the way. Malachi, chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. 
I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction, true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Like I say, that just scares the whop out of me, quite frankly. And then in Ezekiel 22-23, And the word of the Lord came to me, say, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the days of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. Who have devoured human lives? The prophets. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the clean and the unclean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. This is the priests and the prophets, leaders of the church. And then the final one, Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And the whole point is, the job of the priest, the pastor, whatever, is to teach God's word clearly and accurately so that if somebody is destroyed, it isn't his fault. And what I'm suggesting to you is one of the problems we have in this country right now is the church is violating those commandments. The church is not teaching accurately about the Torah and about the Sabbaths And what is done is cause the people to be unrestrained and go and do their own thing thinking that they are righteous. And what God says, they will be destroyed for their lack of knowledge. So, one of the things that you folks can do, and I pray that you will, I'm sure you will, is you should talk to people. Talk about Sabbath. Talk about why it still applies to us. Talk about Torah. Talk about it as teaching, instruction, a great blessing. It is not burdensome. God says so. It's not too heavy. You can do this. And you can. You are. But lots of our brothers and sisters in Christ are just sort of wandering along, expecting the grace of God to save them. But that only works if you acknowledge your sin and confess. And if you don't know what sin is, you can't do that. And that's the destruction for lack of knowledge.